Chapters 17 and 18 of John Barleycorn or Alcoholic Memoirs by Jack London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 17 North we raced from the Bonin Islands to pick up the seal herd, and north we hunted it for a hundred days into frosty mitten weather and into and through vast fogs which hid the sun from us for a week at a time. It was wild and heavy work without a drink or thought of drink. Then we sailed south to Yokohama with a big catch of skins in our salt and a heavy payday coming. I was eager to be ashore and see Japan, but the first day was devoted to ship's work, and not until evening did we sailors land. And here, by the very system of things, by the way life was organized and men transacted affairs, john barleycorn reached out and tucked my arm in his the captain had given money for us to the hunters and the hunters were waiting in a certain japanese public house for us to come and get it we rode to the place in rickshaws our own crowd had taken possession of it drink was flowing everybody had money and everybody was treating. After the hundred days of hard toil and absolute abstinence, in the pink of physical condition, bulging with health, overspilling with spirits that had long been pent by discipline and circumstance, of course we would have a drink or two. And after that we would see the town it was the old story there were so many drinks to be drunk and as the warm magic poured through our veins and mellowed our voices and affections we knew it was no time to make invidious distinctions to drink with this shipmate and to decline to drink with that shipmate we were all shipmates who had been through stress and storm together, who had pulled and hauled on the same sheets and tackles, relieved one another's wheels, laid out side by side on the same jib-boom when she was plunging into it, and looked to see who was missing when she cleared and lifted. So we drank with all, and all treated, and our voices rose, and we remembered a myriad kindly acts of comradeship and forgot our fights and wordy squabbles and knew one another for the best fellows in the world well the night was young when we arrived in that public house and for all of that first night that public house was what i saw of japan a drinking place which was very like a drinking place at home or anywhere else over the world. We lay in Yokohama Harbor for two weeks 
and about all we saw of Japan was its drinking places where sailors congregated. Occasionally, some one of us varied the monotony with a more exciting drunk. In such fashion, I managed a real exploit by swimming off to the schooner one dark midnight and going soundly to sleep while the water police searched the harbor for my body and brought my clothes out for identification. Perhaps it was for things like that, I imagined, that men got drunk. In our little round of living, what I had done was a noteworthy event. All the harbor talked about it. I enjoyed several days of fame among the Japanese boatmen and ashore in the pubs. It was a red-letter event. It was an event to be remembered and narrated with pride. I remember it today, twenty years afterward, with a secret glow of pride. It was a purple passage, just as Victor's wrecking of the tea-house in the Bone-In Islands and my being looted by the runaway apprentices were purple passages. The point is that the charm of John Barleycorn was still a mystery to me. I was so organically a non-alcoholic that alcohol itself made no appeal. The chemical reactions it produced in me were not satisfying because I possessed no need for such chemical satisfaction. I drank because the men I was with drank and because my nature was such that I could not permit myself to be less of a man than other men at their favorite pastime, and I still had a sweet tooth, and on privy occasions when there was no man to see, bought candy and blissfully devoured it. We hove up anchor to a jolly shanty, and sailed out of Yokohama Harbor for San Francisco. We took the northern passage, and with the stout west wind at our back, made the run across the Pacific in thirty-seven days of brave sailing. We still had a big payday coming to us, and for thirty-seven days, Without a drink to addle our mental processes, we incessantly planned the spending of our money. The first statement of each man, ever an ancient one in homeward-bound forecastles, was, No boarding-house sharks in mine. Next, in parentheses, was regret at having spent so much money in Yokohama and after that each man proceeded to paint his favorite phantom. Victor, for instance, said that immediately he landed in San Francisco, he would pass right through the waterfront and the Barbary Coast and put an advertisement in the papers. His advertisement would be for board and room in some simple working-class family. Then, said Victor, I shall go to some dancing school for a week or two just to meet and get acquainted with the girls and fellows. Then I'll get the run of the different dancing crowds and be invited to their homes and to parties and all that. 
and with the money I've got I can last out till next January when I'll go sealing again. No, he wasn't going to drink. He knew the way of it, particularly his way of it, wine in, wit out, and his money would be gone in no time. He had his choice, based on bitter experience, between three days' debauch amongst the sharps and harpies of the Barbary Coast and a whole winter of wholesome enjoyment and sociability, and there wasn't any doubt of the way he was going to choose. Said Axel Gunderson, who didn't care for dancing and social functions, I've got a good payday. Now I can go home. It's fifteen years since I've seen my mother and all the family. When I pay off, I shall send my money home to wait for me. Then I'll pick a good ship bound for Europe and arrive there with another payday. Put them together, and I'll have more money than ever in my life before. I'll be a prince at home. You haven't any idea how cheap everything is in Norway. I can make presents to everybody and spend my money like what would seem to them a millionaire and live a whole year there before I'd have to go back to sea. The very thing I'm going to do, declared Red John. It's three years since I've received a line from home and ten years since I was there. Things are just as cheap in Sweden, Axel, as in Norway, and my folks are real country folk and farmers. I'll send my payday home and ship on the same ship with you for around the horn. We'll pick a good one. And as Axel Gunderson and Red John painted the pastoral delights and festive customs of their respective countries, each fell in love with the other's home place, and they solemnly pledged to make the journey together and to spend together six months in the one Swedish home and six months in the other's Norwegian home. And for the rest of the voyage they could hardly be pried apart. So infatuated did they become with discussing their plans. Long John was not a homebody, but he was tired of the forecastle. No boarding-house sharks in his. He, too, would get a room in a quiet family, and he would go to a navigation school and study to be a captain. And so it went. Each man swore that for once he would be sensible and not squander his money. No boarding-house sharks, no sailor town, no drink was the slogan of our forecastle. The men became stingy. Never was there such economy. They refused to buy anything more from the slop chest. Old rags had to last, and they sewed patch upon patch, turning out what are called homeward-bound patches of the most amazing proportions. They saved on matches, even, waiting till two or three were ready to light their pipes from the same match. 
As we sailed up the San Francisco waterfront, the moment the port doctors passed us, the boarding-house runners were alongside in Whitehall boats. They swarmed on board, each drumming for his own boarding-house, and each with a bottle of free whiskey inside his shirt. But we waved them grandly and blasphemously away. We wanted none of their boarding-houses and none of their whiskey. We were sober, thrifty sailor-men with better use for our money. Came the paying off before the shipping commissioner. We emerged upon the sidewalk, each with a pocketful of money. And we looked at each other. We had been seven months together, and our paths were separating. One last farewell rite of comradeship remained. Oh, it was the way, the custom. Come on, boys, said our sailing master. There stood the inevitable adjacent saloon. There were a dozen saloons all around. And when we had followed the sailing master into the one of his choice, the sharks were thick on the sidewalk outside. Some of them even ventured inside, but we would have nothing to do with them. Then we stood at the long bar, the sailing master, the mate, the six hunters, the six boat steerers, and the five boat pullers. There were only five of the last, for one of our number had been dropped overboard with a sack of coal at his feet between two snow squalls in a driving gale off Cape Jeremo. There were nineteen of us, and it was to be our last drink together. With seven months of men's work in the world, blow high, blow low, behind us, we were looking on each other for the last time. We knew it, for sailors' ways go wide. And the nineteen of us drank the sailing master's treat. Then the mate looked at us with eloquent eyes and called another round. We liked the mate just as well as the sailing master, and we liked them both. Could we drink with one and not the other? And Pete Holt, my own hunter, lost next year in the Mary Thomas with all hands, called around. The time passed. The drinks continued to come on the bar. Our voices rose, and the maggots began to crawl. There were six hunters, and each insisted in the sacred name of comradeship that all hands drink with him just once. There were six boat steerers and five boat pullers, and the same logic held with them. There was money in all our pockets, and our money was as good as any man's, and our hearts were as free and generous. Nineteen rounds of drinks. What more would John Barleycorn ask in order to have his will with men? 
they were ripe to forget their clearly cherished plans. They rolled out of the saloon and into the arms of the sharks and harpies. They didn't last long. From two days to a week saw the end of their money and saw them being carted by the boarding-house masters on board outward-bound ships. Victor was a fine body of a man, and through a lucky friendship managed to get into the life-saving service. He never saw the dancing school, nor placed his advertisement for a room in a working-class family. Nor did Long John win to navigation school. By the end of the week he was a transient lumper on a river steamboat. Red John and Axel did not send their paydays home to the old country. Instead, and along with the rest, they were scattered on board sailing ships bound for the four quarters of the globe, where they had been placed by the boarding-house masters, and where they were working out advance money which they had neither seen nor spent. What saved me was that I had a home and people to go to. I crossed the bay to Oakland, and among other things, took a look at the death road. Nelson was gone, shot to death while drunk and resisting the officers. His partner in that affair was lying in prison. Whiskey Bob was gone. Old Cole, Old Smooge, and Bob Smith were gone. Another Smith, he of the belted guns and the Annie, was drowned. French Frank, they said, was lurking upriver, afraid to come down because of something he had done. Others were wearing the stripes in San Quentin or Folsom. Big Alec, the king of the Greeks, whom I had known well in the old Benicia days, and with whom I had drunk whole nights through, had killed two men and fled to foreign parts. Fitzsimmons, with whom I had sailed on the fish patrol, had been stabbed in the lung through the back, and had died a lingering death complicated with tuberculosis. And so it went, a very lively and well-patronized road. And from what I knew of all of them, John Barleycorn was responsible, with the sole exception of Smith of the Annie. End of chapter 17 Chapter 18 My infatuation for the Oakland waterfront was quite dead. I didn't like the looks of it, nor the life. I didn't care for the drinking, nor the vagrancy of it, and I wandered back to the Oakland Free Library and read the books with great understanding. Then, too, my mother said I had sown my wild oats, and it was time I settled down to a regular job. Also, the family needed the money. So I got a job at the jute mills, a ten-hour day at ten cents an hour. 
Despite my increase in strength and general efficiency, I was receiving no more than when I worked in the cannery several years before. But then there was a promise of a rise to a dollar and a quarter a day after a few months. And here, so far as John Barleycorn is concerned, began a period of innocence. I did not know what it was to take a drink from month-end to month-end. Not yet eighteen years old, healthy and with labor-hardened but unhurt muscles, like any young animal, I needed diversion, excitement, something beyond the books and the mechanical toil. I strayed into young men's Christian associations. The life there was healthful and athletic, but too juvenile. For me, it was too late. I was not boy nor youth, despite my paucity of years. I had bucked big with men. I knew mysterious and violent things. I was from the other side of life so far as concerned the young men I encountered in the YMCA. I spoke another language, possessed a sadder and more terrible wisdom. When I come to think it over, I realize now that I have never had a boyhood. At any rate, the YMCA young men were too juvenile for me, too unsophisticated. This I would not have minded could they have met me and helped me mentally. But I had got more out of the books than they. Their meager physical experiences, plus their meager intellectual experiences, made a negative sum so vast that it overbalanced their wholesome morality and healthful sports. In short, I couldn't play with the pupils of a lower grade. All the clean, splendid young life that was theirs was denied me, thanks to my earlier tutelage under John Barleycorn. I knew too much too young. And yet, in the good time coming, when alcohol is eliminated from the needs and the institutions of men, it will be the YMCA and similar unthinkably better and wiser and more virile congregating places that will receive the men who now go to saloons to find themselves and one another. In the meantime, we live today, here and now, and we discuss today, here and now. I was working ten hours a day in the jute mills. It was humdrum machine toil. I wanted life. I wanted to realize myself in other ways than at a machine for ten cents an hour. And yet I had had my fill of saloons. I wanted something new. I was growing up. I was developing unguessed and troubling potencies and proclivities. And at this very stage, fortunately, I met Louis Shattuck, and we became chums. Louis Shattuck, without one vicious trait, was a real, innocently devilish young fellow, 
who was quite convinced that he was a sophisticated town boy. And I wasn't a town boy at all. Lewis was handsome and graceful and filled with love for the girls. With him it was an exciting and all-absorbing pursuit. I didn't know anything about girls. I had been too busy being a man. This was an entirely new phase of existence which had escaped me. And when I saw Lewis say good-bye to me, raise his hat to a girl of his acquaintance, and walk on with her side by side down the sidewalk, I was made excited and envious. I, too, wanted to play this game. Well, there's only one thing to do, said Lewis, and that is, you must get a girl. Which is more difficult than it sounds. Let me show you at the expense of a slight going aside. Lewis did not know girls in their home life. He had the entree to no girl's home. And, of course, I, a stranger to this new world, was similarly circumstanced. But first, Lewis and I were unable to go to dancing schools or to public dances, which were very good places for getting acquainted. We didn't have the money. He was a blacksmith's apprentice, and was earning but slightly more than I. We both lived at home and paid our way. When we had done this and bought our cigarettes and the inevitable clothes and shoes, there remained to each of us for personal spending a sum that varied between seventy cents and a dollar for the week. We whacked this up, shared it, and sometimes loaned all of what was left of it when one of us needed it for some more gorgeous girl adventure, such as car fare out to Blair's Park and back, twenty cents, bang, just like that, and ice cream for two, thirty cents, or tamales in a tamale parlor, which came cheaper and which for two cost only twenty cents. I did not mind this money meagerness. The disdain I had learned for money from the oyster pirates had never left me. I didn't care overweeningly for it for personal gratification. And in my philosophy I completed the circle, finding myself as equable with the lack of a ten-cent piece as I was with the squandering of scores of dollars in calling all men and hangers-on up to the bar to drink with me. But how to get a girl? There was no girl's home to which Lewis could take me and where I might be introduced to girls. I knew none, and Lewis's several girls he wanted for himself. And anyway, in the very human nature of boys' and girls' ways, he couldn't turn any of them over to me. He did persuade them to bring girlfriends for me, but I found them weak sisters, pale and ineffectual alongside the choice specimens he had. "'You'll have to do like I did,' he said finally. 
I got there by getting them. You'll have to get one the same way. And he initiated me. It must be remembered that Lewis and I were hard situated. We really had to struggle to pay our board and maintain a decent appearance. We met each other in the evening after the day's work on the street corner or in a little candy store on a side street, our sole frequenting place. Here we bought our cigarettes and, occasionally, a nickel's worth of red hots. Oh, yes, Lewis and I unblushingly ate candy. All we could get. Neither of us drank. Neither of us ever went into a saloon. But the girl. In quite primitive fashion, as Lewis advised me, I was to select her and make myself acquainted with her. We strolled the streets in the early evenings. The girls, like us, strolled in pairs. And strolling girls will look at strolling boys who look. And to this day, in any town, city, or village, in which I, in my middle age, find myself, I look on with the eye trained of old experience and watch the sweet innocent game played by the strolling boys and girls who just must stroll when the spring and summer evenings call. The trouble was that in this Arcadian phase of my history, I, who had come through case-hardened from the other side of life, was timid and bashful. Again and again Lewis nerved me up. But I didn't know girls. They were strange and wonderful to me after my precious man's life. I failed of the bold front and the necessary forwardness when the crucial moment came. Then Lewis would show me how. A certain eloquent glance of eye, a smile, a daring, a lifted hat, a spoken word, hesitancies, giggles, coy nervousness, and, behold, Lewis acquainted and nodding me up to be introduced. But when we paired off to stroll along, boy and girl together, I noted that Lewis invariably picked the good looker and left me the little lame sister. I improved, of course, after experiences too numerous to enter upon, so that there were diverse girls to whom I could lift my hat and who would walk beside me in the early evenings. But girls' love did not immediately come to me. I was excited, interested, and I pursued the quest. And the thought of drink never entered my mind. Some of Lewis's and my adventures have since given me serious pause when casting sociological generalizations. But it was all good and innocently youthful, and I learned one generalization, biological rather than sociological, namely, that the Colonel's Lady and Judy O'Grady are sisters under their skins. 
and before long I learned girls' love, all the dear fond deliciousness of it, all the glory and the wonder. I shall call her Haiti. She was between fifteen and sixteen. Her little skirt reached her shoe-tops. We sat side by side in a Salvation Army meeting. She was not a convert, nor was her aunt who sat on the other side of her, and who, visiting from the country when at that time the Salvation Army was not, had dropped in to the meeting for half an hour out of curiosity. And Lewis sat beside me and observed, I do believe he did no more than observe, because Haiti was not his style of girl. We did not speak, but in that great half-hour we glanced shyly at each other and shyly avoided or as shyly returned and met each other's glances more than several times. She had a slender oval face. Her brown eyes were beautiful. Her nose was a dream, as was her sweet-lipped, petulant-hinting mouth. She wore a tam shanter and I thought her brown hair the prettiest shade of brown I had ever seen. And from that single experience of half an hour, I have ever since been convinced of the reality of love at first sight. All too soon the aunt and Haiti departed. This is permissible at any stage of a Salvation Army meeting. I was no longer interested in the meeting, and after an appropriate interval of a couple of minutes or less, started to leave with Lewis. As we passed out, at the back of the hall, a woman recognized me with her eyes, arose, and followed me. I shall not describe her. She was of my own kind and friendship of the old time on the waterfront. When Nelson was shot, he had died in her arms, and she knew me as his one comrade. And she must tell me how Nelson had died, and I did want to know. So I went with her across the width of life, from dawning boy's love for a brown-haired girl in a tam-o-shanter, back to the old sad savagery I had known. And when I had heard the tale, I hurried away to find Lewis, fearing that I had lost my first love with the first glimpse of her. But Lewis was dependable. Her name was Haiti. He knew where she lived. Each day she passed the blacksmith's shop where he worked, going to and from the Lafayette School. Further, he had seen her on occasion with Ruth, another schoolgirl, and still further, Nita, who sold us red hots at the candy store, was a friend of Ruth. The thing to do was to go around to the candy store and see if we could get Nita to give a note to Ruth to give to Haiti. If this could be arranged, all I had to do was write the note. And it so happened. 
and in stolen half-hours of meeting I came to know all the sweet madness of boys' love and girls' love. So far as it goes, it is not the biggest love in the world, but I do dare to assert that it is the sweetest. Oh, as I look back on it. Never did girl have more innocent boy lover than I who had been so wicked wise and violent beyond my years. I didn't know the first thing about girls. I who had been hailed prince of the oyster pirates, who could go anywhere in the world as a man amongst men, who could sail boats, lay aloft in black and storm, or go into the toughest hangouts in Sailor Town and play my part in any rough house that started or call all hands to the bar, I didn't know the first thing I might say or do with this slender little chit of a girl woman whose scant skirt just reached her shoe-tops and who was as abysmally ignorant of life as I was, or thought I was, profoundly wise. I remembered we sat on a bench in the starlight. There was fully a foot of space between us. We slightly faced each other, our near elbows on the back of the bench, and once or twice our elbows just touched. And all the time deliriously happy, talking in the gentlest and most delicate terms that might not offend her sensitive ears, I was cudgeling my brains in an effort to divine what I was expected to do. What did girls expect of boys, sitting on a bench and tentatively striving to find out what love was? What did she expect me to do? Was I expected to kiss her? Did she expect me to try? And if she did expect me, and I didn't, what would she think of me? Ah, she was wiser than I. I know it now, the little innocent girl woman in her shoe-top skirt. She had known boys all her life. She encouraged me in the ways a girl may. Her gloves were off and in one hand, and I remember, lightly and daringly, in mock reproof for something I had said, how she tapped my lips with a tiny flirt of those gloves. I was like to swoon with delight. It was the most wonderful thing that had ever happened to me. And I remember yet the faint scent that clung to those gloves and that I breathed in the moment they touched my lips. Then came the agony of apprehension and doubt. Should I imprison in my hand that little hand with the dangling scented gloves which had just tapped my lips? Should I dare to kiss her there and then, or slip my arm around her waist, or dared I even sit closer. Well, I didn't dare. I did nothing. 
I merely continued to sit there and love with all my soul. And when we parted that evening, I had not kissed her. I do remember the first time I kissed her, on another evening at parting, a mighty moment, when I took all my heart of courage and dared. We never succeeded in managing more than a dozen stolen meetings, and we kissed perhaps a dozen times, as boys and girls kiss, briefly and innocently and wonderingly. We never went anywhere, not even to a matinee. We once shared together five cents worth of red hots. But I have always fondly believed that she loved me. I know I loved her. And I dreamed daydreams of her for a year or more. And the memory of her is very dear. End of chapter 18